0: Friends, here we are. How are you? Welcome along to Call of the Wild, the podcast from WWF with me, Kel Spellman. This is the place where I find out about the environmental threats to our planet and more importantly, what we can do to help. Really excited for today's episode. From our phones, laptops, TVs, even fridges and washing machines, tech plays a huge role in our lives. And as a result, it is also having a massive impact on the planet, an impact like never before. Let's take the internet, for example. One study from 2017 showed that the internet resulted in around 1 billion tonnes of greenhouse gas each year. And that figure has surely risen over the last five years. From keeping systems running in the background to online streaming, it all requires energy. I mean, Even a basic email has a carbon footprint of 4 grams and with literally hundreds of billions of emails estimated to be sent per day, it all adds up. So today, in this episode, we're exploring how technology impacts the health of the planet and looking at what we can do to ensure the tech we use isn't doing more harm than good. Today I'm going to be joined by the absolute legend and powerhouse that is DJ Jada G to hear how she's combining her love of science and the environment with making awesome music.
1: The number one thing is you have to be curious. And I think it's like something that everyone could probably take home from the science world.
0: I'll be speaking with TV and radio presenter and newly appointed WWF ambassador, Patrick Arye about the incredible nature inspired tech he's been investigating. So we've literally got
2: this, what I like to call mother nature's blueprints staring us in the face. We just have to have the humility to take a step back and actually open our eyes and look.
0: And I'll be getting into the big questions surrounding tech and the environment with WWF's Director of Science,
3: Mark Wright. I suspect there will never be you know, a 100% sustainable world, I suspect, but we can move towards a much, much more sustainable world. Plus, we'll hear
0: from a high school student in India who's created an app, To try and prevent air pollution in her hometown trust me you do not want to miss what she has to say so let's begin with a very simple question how does technology affect nature and the environment well tech like everything we use is made so it uses products from around the world to be created which is a drain on the planet's natural resources plus From manufacturing to transporting, there's energy costs involved. I wanted to dig into this a little bit more, so I got the lowdown from WWF's Director of Science,
3: Mark Wright. If we take the things which we think of as being inherently good, so let's think about your know, solar panels and wind turbines. Yeah, you know, we know we have to move towards renewable energy. So this of course is a good thing. But to build a wind turbine, you know, to make solar panels, you know, it means metal, it needs other products to go into it. You know, we need to kind of create it so it's made in a factory with time, effort, energy and and so on. Has to be transported from place A to B, has to be installed maybe with concrete footings. So there is always those costs in terms of establishing this good tech, there will always be costs. But of course, let's be really clear in this particular example, the costs are far, far outweighed by the benefits in this particular system, because in any alternative system, you know, like coal production, that also requires a huge amount of, of inputs to build the big cooling towers and so on. So I suppose the message that it gives us is we have to be thoughtful about what tech we use, how we roll it out, and actually how we make sure that we recycle it as best as possible so we're not using these resources, chucking it away to one side, and then retaking fresh virgin material to build new stock again. Yes, I'm so glad you mentioned that because
0: I'll be honest, growing up when I was well, a lot younger, I was always one of those young people that was like, oh, new phones, new consoles. But actually the older I've got, of course, you understand that this has a really big impact on our planet. So I actually want to find out where do our phones come from and what is the impact of that? Let's take a little pause and find out.
4: Here in the UK, we spend hours every day glued to our phones. And all that screen time means a lot of phone charging, which needs energy, which globally adds up to a significant environmental impact. But actually, when it comes to smartphones, the biggest carbon cost by far is making them in the first place. In fact, building a phone accounts for 85-95% to of its annual carbon footprint. Last year, an estimated 1.4 billion smartphones were sold worldwide, so you can see why the carbon footprint of making these devices is similar to that of an entire country like the Philippines in just one year. From energy and water use to extracting different elements and materials, there are a lot of environmental costs to building our favourite gadget. There's over 40 minerals and metals for a start, each with an often-complicated supply chain spread across the globe. And these range from well-known elements like iron, used for microphone and speakers, and copper, silver and gold for the wiring on the circuit boards. But there's also things like cobalt and lithium, both used in batteries, and rare earth metals like neodymium and europium used in making touchscreens sadly not only is there an environmental cost to extracting these minerals but mining in some parts of the world has a terrible social cost as miners are forced to work in appalling conditions phones are such an integral part of modern day life there is no way we can imagine giving them up so what can we do to minimize their impact and our own footprint best of all just use the phone you have for longer Replacing parts like the battery when needed, rather than getting a whole new device. You can buy second-hand refurbished phones, which are good for the planet and for your wallet too. And when you need a new device, don't forget to recycle your old one. The more we can use components already in the system, rather than replacing with new resources taken from the ground, the better. Oof.
0: The scale of it is frightening. That is it's a lot isn't it? But of course, great to get some tips to know how we can maybe counter that and do our own little bit in a small way. But Mark, let's get back to you, my friend. Do you think there will be a more sustainable way for us to use our tech while it not put a massive cost on the earth? Or is there always going to be that fine balancing act to play?
3: I suspect there will never be a 100% sustainable world, I suspect. But we can move towards a much, much more sustainable world. And actually, what's quite interesting now, so for example, in the European Union, they're looking at legislation to make it legally binding, that it is written into new products that there has to be a mechanism to allow them to be reused, recycled, upscaled, and so on. So it's making the policy environment right for it to take place. But of course, again, coming back to you and me and and our listeners, there's something that we can do. Just in the UK, the UK alone, we have about $20 Okay, billion pounds worth of unused technology sitting in the back of our drawers, at the bottom of our cupboards, in the attic. You, it's our old kind of, I don't know, VHS and Betamax video <laughs> players. It's our sort of three old mobile phones that we forgot to recycle. So yeah, twenty billion pounds worth of tech is sitting in our drawers and cupboards. So there are places already they will take those things and they will change them, they will upgrade, they'll give it a new lease of life such that that stock of material isn't being thrown away. And I I would challenge people to say, where is a way? Because what we mean is it's out of sight. We're no longer aware of it. But all the stuff we throw away goes somewhere. It goes into a landfill. Or if we're flushing down the toilet or down the sink, it goes into our river systems. So actually, there is no away. There is just somewhere else. So (laughs) when we're talking about disposing of our products, technology or otherwise, let's be really thoughtful about what we're doing with this material so that we're not, again, inadvertently putting extra pressures and stresses on the natural world
0: absolutely and and again there it is my friends you know those two key areas whenever we talk about these issues we're looking for the systemic policy change around these issues but again as well it requires us to be that little bit more conscientious and a little bit more thoughtful um how big of a role can tech play in helping us solve this climate
3: and biodiversity crisis mark? I think we have to be careful because I think it's about apportioning responsibility. We use satellites in space and we can use that for all sorts of things. We can use it to track deforestation in the Amazon. We can use it to track where we're seeing greenhouse gas emissions at a really kind of fine level. So which cities are particularly pumping out greenhouse gases? But it also, again, allows us to kind of stick our noses into those places in the world we don't understand. So we've discovered, for example, in the Antarctic, penguin colonies we simply did not know exist because people haven't been there and the way we've seen it is not because the satellites are clever enough to look at the penguins what they've managed to see is these massive areas of brown which is penguin poo and so <laughs> as the hundreds and or thousands of penguins poo they stain the, the ice brown and it allows us to find out where they are We've used technology for protection, so let's head back to the Amazon again, where well, WWF have provided some of the communities there with drones, which they use to keep an eye on the forest to look out for illegal deforestation or illegal mining. So really, really practical uses. So I think we're all agreed that technology can be, as I said, it can be a massive ally, both in terms of understanding the world, but also in protecting the world. And of course, it can do clever things. And there are a lot of people out there trying to work out mechanisms whereby we can get carbon out of the atmosphere. They talk about drawing down carbon so that we reduce the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And I think that's all good. And, that's, and we should be looking to do those things. We talk about living in a world where we stay within a 1.5 degrees centigrade global average warming. We've already reached 1.1, so we're getting dangerously close to that tipping point, and we're already seeing those massive impacts around the world. So really, the time fraction is now. So yes, technology can help us do that, let's be really clear. But the point I really want to hammer home here is we should not rely on technology to repair the damage which we are doing. What we really need to do is to make sure that we stop creating that damage in the first place. And by that, I mean, you know, make sure we are pumping less greenhouse gas into the atmosphere. Yeah. And I think that's where we all have a role to play, to think about how we individually and collectively can just produce less so that we're not pushing in actually kind of the dial through to this dangerous tipping point.
0: Honestly, I've known Mark for a number of years now, and it is just always an absolute joy and so enlightening, inspiring whenever you get to listen to him speak. So a massive thank you for his time and words as well. What a man. So we've had a quick guide there to just some of the ways tech is affecting nature. But on the flip side of that, what if nature was influencing tech too, and even helping us find ways to cope with the changing climate? well, would you believe it? That is what the brilliant broadcaster and filmmaker Patrick Argy has been looking into in his new series Evolve. It's a concept called biomimicry. And brace yourself, my friends, because this is super cool.
2: So biomimicry is exactly what it says on the tin. Bio, biology and mimicry. So this is the study where scientists, researchers look to Mother Nature Look at all the different processes, the different species, the different adaptations that animals and natural processes have that we can learn from. And the way that I like to put it is that humanity's been you know in our kind of modern era, like a couple of hundred years <laughs> that, and you know like we've we've been on this planet for a few thousand years, but life itself has been on planet Earth for three point eight billion years. Mm-hmm. so that is a lot of time. Mm-hmm and all these animals are having to face different problems whether it's how do you deal with excess sunlight in the desert how do you remain streamlined in the ocean if you're a predator so these are all the different adaptations that animals have managed to work out or evolved to overcome so we've literally got this what i like to call mother nature's blueprints staring us in the face yeah we just have to have the humility to take a step back and actually open our eyes and look
0: Nice. Okay, so what would be some of these examples then? Give me some of these, these belters.
2: Uh, one of the exciting ones is sharkskin. So I'd heard about sharkskin technology being used to help make swimsuits that help swimmers or athletes to swim faster. And they've been used, I think they were used in a couple of the Olympics and then they were banned because they were actually really, really
0: Really good. (laughs) Yeah,
2: they are almost too good. But what we looked at was a particular feature of shark skin, which are dermal denticles. So these are tiny, tiny scales, Mm -hmm. almost like teeth-like scales on the surface of the skin of a shark. So if you were to actually run your hand, um, if you were to find a shark, (laughs) like right here, and you ran your hand from its nose all the way down to its tail, it'd be really smooth. Mm As soon as you try and go the other way, like go backwards, yeah. it's like sandpaper. Your hand just stops.
0: No way.
2: Yeah. And right. it's super, super smooth. And then you just go back and go like, ah. These dermal denticles are kind of arranged in a diamond pattern. And what happens is that because of the way that they interlock, it makes it very, very difficult for bacteria to stick onto that surface. So that's what scientists discovered. And essentially, they been able to copy this pattern mm-hmm. and print it onto sheets of film. Mm -hmm. And now you can use that to cover high contact surfaces or hospitals to help prevent the spread of bacteria, for example, MRSA. So simply by looking to nature, looking to these apex predators, which have had such a bad press and have been persecuted for years and years and are still being persecuted now, we actually can learn something which will save millions of lives. So for me, that's a really cool one, especially given the fact that we were just coming out of a pandemic
0: just makes you appreciate and feel even more love and gratitude for the natural world, you know, because just gives us so, so much. We just need to, I think, appreciate it, protect it, and be using it in the right way.
2: You can't help but hear these stories and be motivated. So one of the animals that we looked at was a Namib beetle. It lives okay. in the deserts of Namibia. This beetle has a problem. It's living in the desert, hot, there's no water. Well, fortunately for the beetle, the Namib desert is like this long strip hundreds of kilometers in length, but it just so happens to be on the coast. So you've got ocean and then desert. desert. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what happens is that you get this early morning fog because of the moisture from the, the sea It kind of rolls in over the dunes in the morning. So there's like this hour, two hour period where it's really foggy in the desert and then eventually burns off. What these beetles have managed to do or what they've evolved is the ability to capture water out of thin air. So on their scales... Uh, wing scales, they have these tiny bumps. You get the fog water coalescing on those bumps. yeah They build up, build up, build up, and eventually whoop, drop down these channels to the head of the beetle where it can take a drink in the middle of the desert. So, this kind of concept of harvesting fog water is something that's been seen in South America as well. Communities have put like huge nets up where in the morning you get all this dew. dew. Imagine the yeah, dew yeah, on yeah, the grass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what the beetle's doing. It's collecting the dew, so to speak, from the air. And potentially we could do that, which when you look at the UN's projections, I think by 2050, something like two thirds of the world's population is going to be living with water scarcity. Yes, yeah. So it's, it's not a big a then problem. problem.
0: Yeah, it's a big problem that's coming.
2: So this is really exciting when you think about what a lack of water could do to so many communities Mm. and cities and countries so even kind of thinking about how we can avert some potential crises a little unsung hero the tiny nama beetle could potentially save the lives and the livelihoods of two-thirds of this planet is kind of mind-blowing
0: learning about biomimicry was one of those things where i was like how have i not come across this before and just imagine what other technological inspiration we could get from looking at nature around us. I mean, maybe you might come up with the next big thing. Who knows? Now, tech goes way beyond the physical realm of laptops and wind turbines. Software and apps are a type of tech too. And actually, they can be a great way to get involved in the fight against climate change. Take Walrus from space, for example. Now, you might remember if you've listened before, we talked about that on our home episode walruses like many different wildlife species around the world are already feeling the impact of climate change and you can help by becoming a walrus detective If you're thinking kel a walrus detective trust me just head online where you can help scientists from wwf and the british antarctic survey search for walruses via satellite images to track how they are being affected by the climate crisis Then we have so many apps that help in tackling the problem too. And we've got more and more apps that help in minimise food waste. There's great apps which uses the camera to help you learn about plants and tree species that you'll find around you in your local environment. And of course, I'm always speaking about this, WWF's My Footprint app. That's a space where it helps you minimise your carbon footprint and shows you some easy steps you can take to be that little bit more thoughtful and a little bit more conscious. And for the environmentalists among us who are really into their tech, there is always making your own app. Now, that's not something I'll be doing anytime soon, but this is exactly what Unarthi has done. Now, Unarthi is a high school student from India who wanted to find a way to try and reduce crop burning. The practice of burning off any unharvested or diseased crops to quickly prepare a field for the next season. So she created an app that promotes eco-friendly farming methods, which will hopefully reduce the amount of unharvested crops left in fields by the end of the season. Crops which otherwise would be burned.
5: So essentially I live in a metropolitan city near the capital of India. We're very close to Punjab and Haryana and Uttar Pradesh, which are other states in India. These states have a lot of farmers. And what happens is during April, May, October, November, these months, the farmers need to redo their fields. And to do that, what they turn to is crop burning, which is a cost-effective method of getting rid of their crop residue to reduce sort of the turnaround time that exists between harvesting and sowing. So what happens because of that, because we're so close by to these agricultural states and crop burning is so prominent, every year during these times of the year, like April, May, October, November, the air quality gets really bad during COVID, mask was a new concept for the rest of the world. But for us, we cannot leave the house in, say, November without a mask. So that leads to a lot of problems, right? It obviously sort of causes acid rain and it harms forests and things like that. It gets very uncomfortable for pets. So for example, dogs and all these other animals get very, very restless with increased amounts of air pollution. So we knew that we had to do something that sort of Tackled this problem of crop burning and the problem of smoke and smog that exists in the national capital region. So we built Agriculture, which is an app aiming to make farming practices more efficient and sustainable in India. It has a variety of features. So It has AI powered plant disease detection through image recognition. So you point your camera towards the plant and it can tell you what diseases the plant is suffering from. That is something that significantly leads to crop residue. Then there's things like what we call scientific farming calculators. So it tells you the fertilizer combinations that you can use and the seed rate depending on the metrics of your particular farm, the dimensions and all of those things. And there's farming forums. For example, we have a forum called Rice Farming in Punjab. You can connect with other farmers who are working on the same problem, or who are growing the same crops and talk about things that works for them to keep away diseases or things like that. So essentially agriculture, through that, aims to also build a community of sustainable farmers with responsible consumption and production practices. It's been very, very gratifying. And I think technology honestly has a lot of potential. And we've only really scratched the surface until now, right? On like a personal level, I think what technology has already done actually for conservation or for the environment is it's definitely created a greater sense of awareness so now people actually know that these are you know problems that the environment is facing and what are the kinds of actions that they can take so i think that no step is too small it's not mandatory that you make an app for something i think even if you sort of make a switch to a more sustainable lifestyle like for example you choose to use more public transport than say your your own car so i think those things are also sort of your efforts to conserve environment and i don't think people should wait for that big step. In the smaller steps that you can take, those also contribute to sustainability.
0: So a wholehearted thank you to Anarthi for sharing the awesome work she's been doing and incredibly inspiring. She and a couple of friends made Agriculture for a project with an organization, Technovation Girls. So head to the link in our show notes if you want to find out more. I think it'd be well worth anyone's time. Please do that. Oh, the good people just keep rolling in on this episode because up next, I am joined by the awesome Jada G. Not only is she a Grammy-nominated house DJ, but you may be surprised to find out she's also a scientist who has spent years studying the impacts people are having on the environment and wildlife around us. (laughs) I had so many questions for her and she told me about her journey, the role tech plays in environmental science and how she fell in love with nature and music.
1: I grew up like in the middle of nowhere surrounded by trees and mountains and lakes and it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah I was really lucky because I was able to just kind of like go outside and do whatever I want Mm -hmm. and just like explore and the house I grew up in was just literally on top of a mountain in the forest. And so you just kind of wander around and play in the creeks and, like, climb all the trees. And so, yeah, it, hopefully that paints a picture, like, definitely oh. immersed in nature from an early start.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you paint a picture. You're kind of you're describing the most idyllic place, I think, where I want to live in time. <laughs> just on a mountain surrounded by nature dawn from the outside world you know yeah <laughs> i want to dig into into you because you have a degree in environmental toxicology yeah i said that right
1: yeah yeah it so yeah, got cool. a lot of syllables so i'll start from the beginning like my undergrad degree it was in biology honors and then i moved on did my master's specializing in environmental toxicology and environmental toxicology it's really the study of chemicals and how they affect the environment for me personally, I was looking at several different chemicals and their effects on the health of killer whales that are off the coast of British Columbia, Canada. So, looking at how these chemicals kind of move throughout the ecosystem, and you know, you can kind of pinpoint in whatever area it is that you know their effects on it. So,
0: yeah, okay, right. Of course, this is kind of coming under the bracket of tech, and I guess you know, in that particular field of your research, you know, how did tech? help you?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest thing is data. You need to learn how to work with like huge amounts of information and how to kind of make it make sense to you. Like what's the story all this data is telling you, right? Gotta know your statistics and it's a lot of like running models and stuff. So like there's like coding involved if you want and Mine was pretty bare bones. Like I just used a lot of spreadsheets and got really good at coding within Excel. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's really nerdy stuff.
0: No, nice. cool stuff. And, and actually, like you say, I think you know, data is arguably one of the, the most powerful things we have to try and help us paint a picture and, and see where we're up. Was there anything you found in your research you know that like the effect that humans were having on the environment or maybe on those killer whales?
1: Yeah, no, we were looking at like several different chemicals and like basically assessing which of those chemicals should be the main focus for the Canadian government to kind of work with that chemical and like take it out of the ecosystems and, or et cetera, do more research around it. And so like the main one is uh, called PCBs and they're called legacy pollutants. So it means that they came out in the seventies. They were like in old transformers and stuff and just like oil and chemicals like that. And, you know, Mm -hmm. they were just dumped into the ocean because it was the seventies and they (laughs) are like big toxic chemicals. So they don't break down very easily and they're persistent. So they, they stay for a really long time. Right. So, That's been a main concern for the Canadian government for for many, many years. But then what's happening is there's a close second, which were PBDEs and they're they're flame retardants. So they are the chemicals that you spray on like your upholstery um, so that they don't just like burst into flame super easily. And that's become a more prevalent thing within the environment. And with killer whales, we know that PCBs, they really affect their immune system and also their ability to give birth. And so what's happening is the population is so small. And then when they do get pregnant and give birth, the babies aren't able to really survive, essentially. Basically, what's happening is that we're trying to figure out which chemicals were the biggest effects that we could focus on to help these killer whales it was a super interesting project. I'm really honored that I I was able to do it because it was a project that was directly affiliated with the Canadian government. So it did feel like, you know, whatever my findings were going to be, like they were going to be listened to. And, you know, there's so many compounding effects too, you know, it's not just one single animal, even though you have to do that when you're in sciences, you have to like look into a specific question, but any scientist knows that like once you could like it's really hard to hone in on one specific question because there's it's connected to a million other things right which is the fun part as well
0: so it's like the tip of the iceberg almost isn't it yeah yeah so then of course moving from that amazing work and honestly i mean i could probably sit and speech about that for now but you of course are you know a, a grammy nominated musician so how, how yeah, I was interested. How did that then come about? <laughs> or is that something you've always done alongside it?
1: No, you know, it's funny. Life is such a funny thing. Um, so as a child, my mom put me in piano and violin. So I am classically trained and I'm just like a big nerd for music. You know, it started when I was a teen, when a lot of people are like super into music and it just didn't stop. Like I mm, just, yeah. I was super hungry for all different kinds of music and the internet was so such a huge world for me and it allowed me to explore so much different music that you know being in a small town it's really hard to access those things it was huge for me and then it got to a point like after like 2010 or so like I was like oh I should I would really like to learn how to DJ because I was getting more exposed to like the festival culture and how people share music I really didn't think literally my goal was oh it'd be nice to like DJ at our local club once a week. That would be, it would be nice to have a residency in Vancouver and play once a week. That's literally like, was my goal, that was it. Wow. (laughs) And and so I taught myself, I bought decks. I would come home and teach myself to beat match. My poor mother had to listen (laughs) to these just horrendous mixes. (laughs) Um, And, but I just like really taught myself how to do that. And then um, I moved to Vancouver. And I was also had just started my master's program at the same time. So it really was wow. just it was just a hobby. I would literally have my my science community during the day and then my music community at night. It was these kind of two separate worlds that I was involved in that were fulfilling all these needs within me. And I have so many friends who still work in the sciences, and that's that has been their trajectory. and I love I love hearing about the stuff that they're working on. I love really to be a good scientist, the number one thing is you have to be curious. And I think it's like something that everyone could probably take home from the science world is just being more curious about everything, like not just your environmental surroundings, but about the people who are in Mm -hmm. around you as well. I think if everyone was just in a non-judgmental way, just curious about the people they're around. I think it would be we'd be maybe
0: in a easier place. As a musician and a scientist, do you find that they go together <laughs> and they merge?
1: Yeah, can they merge? You know, I'm trying. They merge in one person, <laughs> which is me. So, hey. for, yeah, like in terms of like, you know, there's nerdy bits that I do that you know some, some other musicians also do that are really into. The environment and nature and stuff which is just like bringing it into your music right so my first album that i released on ninja tune i basically it was oh it's so nerdy it was basically an ode to my to my thesis essentially so the entire album is like basically around my thesis to the point where when i searched my thesis for like the word i used the most number of times Significant changes was was the most number so I called my album Significant Changes. Significant Changes yeah. No Way. Yeah.
0: Right. Oh Yeah. I mean it's you, super it's nerdy insane. stuff like that. Honestly, that is class. I've just oh you're just giving it a whole new whole new dimension now. Little Easter eggs. Oh
1: yeah. Like even my earlier stuff, you know, like I made this track and I made a remix and it was called PCB Mix which is just like such a play on words in a toxicology (laughs) sense. You have no idea. Uh, So the album, the first track is called Abstract, which is like the first kind of when you're reading a scientific paper you have to read the abstract first then there's the last bit you read is the conclusion so my last song in the album is called conclusion and there's orca whale sounds I sampled this woman Misty McDuffie one of the main scientists that really spoke out about basically the Canadian government not doing enough for killer whales and so I took a radio show where she was talking about this and I sampled that and like used it in this like kind of Weird, trippy house technoey kind of track, <laughs> and like, yeah.
0: Honestly, jada I, I, I honestly, have, I mean, I was fascinated anyway, being able to kind of do my research into you, but even more so chatting and you. Honestly, I could could have a two-hour, three-hour-long special, but we will, you know, time is of the essence. So, uh, a question I always finish on with my guests is, uh, what brings you hope?
1: Honestly, it's the younger generation. I have a niece and nephew and um, they're like 18 and 15 years old. And like how aware they are compared to how I was at that age is Mm -hmm. just like so much further than, you know, a lot of my generation ever was. And that gives me hope. They get it. They understand and they want more from our society, from our systems, from our neighbors. And that gives me hope is that the younger generation, they're they're with it. They know what's up. And yeah. it's our job to really give them a leg up as much as we can.
0: Jada G, I thank you. I salute you and cannot wait to catch you at a gig. Honestly, buzzing off our conversation and buzzing off her. And don't forget, you can hear more from my conversation with Jada in our bonus episode in a couple weeks time. And breathe. Wow. What an episode. That is it. For this month and i really hope that you found some of those tips and tricks we've learned along the way helpful tech has done and is doing such wonders for our understanding of nature and the wildlife we all know and love and if we all make those small changes to how we use our own tech we can be doing our bit to help protect the planet once again a huge thank you to mark wright patrick Ayi, anarthi and G for joining me in this episode I know you probably sat there thinking, oh, Kel, I wouldn't mind hearing more from the brilliant Jada G and Patrick R. Yee. Don't worry, I've got you covered. You can hear more from them in our bonus episode in two weeks' time. Call of the Wild is a fresh air production for WWF. Please do subscribe or follow now for free so that you don't miss an episode. The Wild is calling. It's time to act.